Nancy. Welcome to episode 36 of the Front Porch Book Club. The Front Porch Book Club is a podcast that meets twice a month. We like to dig deep into the relationship between characters and the worlds they live in. Grab your book and iced tea and join us on the Front Porch. For this episode, you interviewed Robert Kolker about his book, The Hidden Valley Road. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to join the interview, but Nancy, it was a great interview. Thank you. He was very, very interesting to talk to, and I know that you would have loved being part of that conversation. You can tell he's extremely accomplished, and he was extraordinarily generous with his time. He's the author of Hidden Valley Road. It was an instant number one New York Times bestseller and a selection of Oprah's book club. It was named a top 10 book of the year by the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and Slate. One of the year's best by NPR, the Boston Globe, the New York Post, and Amazon, the number one book of the year by People, and one of President Barack Obama's favorite books of 2020. Robert Kolker's previous works include Last Girls, also a New York Times bestseller, and a New York Times notable book, and one of Slate's best nonfiction books of the quarter century. He is also a National Magazine Award finalist whose journalism has appeared in the New York Times Magazine, Wired, Oh, the Oprah Magazine, The Marshall Project, Bloomberg, Businessweek, and New York Magazine. Wow, what a lot of wonderful things that he has done and been able to accomplish. It's not surprising because of how he wrote his book and how interesting his his book is. So Nance, let's get to the interview. Great. Welcome, Robert, to our front porch. Hi, Nancy. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks so much for having me. This is just an absolute delight. Linda and I really enjoyed your fantastic book. It's the very particular story of the Galvin family, a family with 12 children, six of whom are diagnosed with schizophrenia. Yet in some ways, to me, it really feels like the story of many families who face a schizophrenia diagnosis. And I love the subtitle of Hidden Valley Road, Inside the Mind of an American Family. To me, this subtitle almost suggests the universality of families dealing with schizophrenia. Have I read too much into the subtitle? No, I think that's just about right, for sure. I, I want to thank you again to both of you for reading the book. And it's great to be talking to you and to people from Lincoln, I was really flattered that the book was selected for the One Book, One Lincoln Festival. And and I was really glad to take part in that last year. And so to come back for this is just very meaningful to me. Uh, That subtitle, Inside the Mind of an American Family, was intended to show what I thought might set this story apart from other books about mental illness. As I got to know this family, I realized that there was something very special they had to offer. A lot of the books out there that I was reading about severe mental illness were either textbooks, obviously, or they were memoirs of people who had gone through difficulties themselves or perhaps talking about their mother or father or uncle or or child. There are a lot of wonderful memoirs and a lot of wonderful science books. But as I got to know this family, I saw an opportunity to tell the story of the entire family from every every living person's point of view. And 
to me, that just seemed so special. I couldn't think of another book that had tried to do that. And I saw the book from the beginning as sort of a, um, like a quilt where I would stitch together different perspectives from different family members. And so the, the well siblings would also be represented. And so would be the people who were diagnosed with schizophrenia. It would be everybody. And that's why I thought the subtitle did a lot of work to sort of get that across, to say that really we're talking about a family here. We're not just talking about a medical mystery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much so. The idea of this being a quilt definitely resonates because throughout the book, we really are piecing together the story, not just chronologically, but in terms of point of view of the family members, which was just fascinating. And terrifying for me in the beginning. I wasn't sure whether people would just throw the book across the room because they would be kept switching people and the names all sound the same and how do you keep them all straight? I had a lot of uh, worries about that in the beginning. But I saw, as I reported, that that certain people in the family could be foregrounded uh, and I could sort of send a little signal to readers that we were going to come back to them more often. And then the others could sort of orbit around them like satellites so they would job in from time to time and and that way it would be a little easier for readers to get to know who was who the two sisters the only girls in the family that this is a family of, with 12 children they wind up people who we come, come back to time and time again and the oldest son donald we're back to him time and again and the mother mimi those are sort of the big ones and then everyone else we see in relief to them and that kind of is a useful thing. I also have kind of a cast of characters at the top of every chapter, which I'm kind of excited about. I always like talking with people about that because it really helps you keep track, not just of who's who, but who we're focusing on from chapter to chapter. Oh, I absolutely love that and relied on it to keep track of the order of the children as well. Was that your idea or was that your publisher's? It was mine. I was very excited. I was running around the house and I showed it to everybody there saying, look, I have this idea. The idea would be not just to have the names of the family, but to have boldface for the particular people who were going to be figure into that chapter. And it was almost like um, you're watching a ball game and you've got the program to the game and you know who's up at bat this inning. And I thought that it would succeed in getting the readers to relax a little bit and say, okay, cool. I'm going to get to know everybody, but I know what's happening this chapter, and it, it'll help take me through it. The otherwise, what you're doing is you're jumping back and forth from person to person so much that it's just um, impossible for everyone. <laughs> yeah, I loved that uh, listing. That was really helpful to me. You mentioned some of the members of the family that were foregrounded. For me, it really felt like Mimi, Margaret, and Lindsay were the characters that took center stage. And Mimi, with all her warts and in all her glory, Margaret and Lindsay trying to survive a traumatic upbringing, finding strength in one another, and then diverging in their healing. Was this centering a product of who they were and their stories? Was it a product of who was available and willing to participate? How did those three or four, including Donald, really become foregrounded in this story? The two sisters I knew would figure prominently. They they were the ones who came to me thinking about books that they loved, like The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks, and wondering if their family could be like that family, could be profiled by a journalist. And when they got on the phone with me, they had already done years and years of thinking about 
what they would want to say. And so I learned all of the terrifying and sad things that had happened to the family all in that first phone call. It was not, it was not like pulling teeth. They were there and ready to talk about it. And I was rather horrified, obviously, and my heart went out to the entire family. But I also wondered how to tell a story like this. Who do you root for? How do you get through it? Is it maybe there's a doctor who treated them who we can follow? How do you tell this story? Because I didn't want to tell a monster movie story. I didn't want to tell a story about you know, people being terrorized. And so I, I took my time and got to know the family better and talked to everyone on the phone. And I knew that the first person I would want to talk to on the phone after the sisters was Mimi. And I also knew that for the longest time, she was not interested in airing her dirty laundry and talking to anyone, but she had changed her mind now. And so everyone was excited about that. And so I got on the phone with her and, and got to know her about her. And I saw just how fascinating she was in all of her contradictions. Here's someone who made terrible mistakes and actually put her some of the children in harm's way by keeping other children in the house. But at the same time, she kept the family together. The family would be homeless if it weren't for her, and the family would never have been studied by science if it weren't for her. And so here, here is a wonderful way to talk about the complexity of parenting, and not just that, but talking about how you can grow up and become a teenager and decide that you hate your parents and then you can turn 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 and you start to see your parents with a little bit more subtlety, forgive some aspects of them. So I did think, to your point, that following the sisters and their relationship with their mother and with each other as it changed from decade to decade would be something that a lot of people could find relatable even outside of schizophrenia. I'll just say one last thing about the sisters. I, I love them both, and I, I'm, I'm amazed by how different they were, and it would, took me by surprise in the beginning. I really thought I'd be telling the story of two sisters who would be in lockstep on every issue, but then I got to know them better and realized that I really had only thought that because I'd only talked to the two of them together. And as I got to know them better, I saw that they clashed in some areas. They had different point of views. They had, they had processed some of the same childhood traumas in very different ways. And I worried about that initially, but then I came around to the idea that that too was extremely accurate. It, it was true to what the way that we all experience family life. I have a sister and a brother, and we all experienced our family in slightly different ways. We have some overlap and we have some contradictions. And so I thought here readers could see two very different ways of dealing with the same incredible, incredible set of circumstances. And they could ask themselves, would I have acted more like Lindsay or would I have reacted more like Margaret? And some readers have actually said to me that some, these are readers who are dealing with challenges at home. And they say to me, some days I feel like Margaret and other days I feel like Lindsay. And that just takes my breath away when I hear that because that means that this, the book is, is really holding those ideas uh, together at the same time, which is a wonderful thing. Yeah, I think those interactions between the siblings are so strong, the well siblings, as well as those with schizophrenia, and how it changes over the years. You just don't have a relationship with someone, and that relationship is static. No, these relationships grow, develop, recede, become more prominent in a person's life. And I thought that you really illustrated that beautifully. I really... Um had written a lot about families in the past, but not a lot about schizophrenia. 
And another really big worry for me going forward was how was I going to put that on the page in an accurate way and in a sensitive way, in a way that that didn't look like invasion of the body snatchers. I didn't want to be writing a book that would say, and then the second second son got sick too, and that would be the last you'd ever hear from him. Right. And, And I... I worried about that until I met the three surviving sick brothers and realized that these were not people who are in a straitjacket situation. They're not, it's not like talking to Hannibal Lecter. They are human beings and they have personalities. They, they have been taking medications for decades that have kind of muffled their personality and dampened them and hurt their cognition but they still are very much their own people and they all are different from one another. And it was an early lesson for me in how we can all talk about schizophrenia and give it a name. But the fact is that it, it manifests very differently in different people. And it might actually be several different brain disorders. We just don't know enough about it yet. I learned so much about severe mental illness when working on this book. I really thought we were in the age of biological psychiatry where you know, medication like Prozac was helping with depression and lithium and other medications for bipolar disorder. But what I learned is that for schizophrenia and for other severe mental illnesses, the medicines are still very primitive and not satisfying. They don't cure and and they they work miracles in some ways, but in other ways really take their toll. And that was a real education for me. And And to watch a whole family go through that over decades was very educational. Mm -hmm. And I think educational for your readers as well. I feel like I learned so much about that disease and treatment that I did not understand before. It it felt almost like this was a public service to readers and communities who are reading this book to really understand this very important mental illness better and have a better understanding of what community mental health centers are dealing with, what families are dealing with. Was that in your mind as you were writing it, or were you just trying to write a really good story? (laughs) I... um... I'm very privileged because my career really took shape at New York Magazine, where I was there for about 17 years. And that place really allowed me to write stories that could be shaped similarly to this book. They could be a captive, hopefully a captivating narrative of some sort, some sort of story about people going through something extraordinary. And then all the while, there would be a second story running under it of something complicated, whether it's a a legal matter or or something scientific or or something else, some bigger question about human nature that we'd be exploring. And when I would set out to report these stories, often they were crime stories at New York Magazine. It was anybody's guess whether the finished product would be 80% about the people in the story and 20% about that big issue that was bubbling underneath or the other way around, 80% about the issue and the, the people just being a small part of the story. And it was this exactly the same with Hidden Valley Road. I, I set out and said, is this a science book with a family as a case study? Or is it a family story that happens to be about schizophrenia and they become our entry point where we can find an interesting way to learn about something we wouldn't otherwise learn about? And I saw before long that it really had to be the second one. First of all, I'm not a, um, a not a science writer. I'm a generalist. I, I write narrative nonfiction. I don't write science books. So I come much more naturally to the family story. But secondly, what an opportunity to help people 
uh, understand people who they might never otherwise understand. A lot of my role models in nonfiction are writers who do this exact same thing. Some of my favorite books, since it's a library you know, event I did at, at Lincoln last year. Right. Uh, it, some of my favorite books are nonfiction books that do this. They kind of lift the veil on something that you're too intimidated to learn about any other way. Um, one of them is Behind the Beautiful Forevers by Catherine Boo, which is on one level about life in the slums outside of Mumbai in India. And at the other level, it's a rip-roaring, amazing you know, story about families who are struggling to get by in a tough situation. So on one hand, it's a subject that intimidated me for years. How on earth would I ever understand what happens in, in such a desperate place? On the other hand, the book is in some ways like reading Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. I mean, you're, these people come to life in very fun and interesting ways. They are not, uh, it's not like watching a long public service announcement or uh, infomercial about a tragic situation. These are real people with real wants and needs and, and a lot of suspense, and you really wind up rooting for them in different ways. That That's the kind of book that I enjoy, and that's the kind of story that I would love to write. There, there are other books like this, too, that are closer to home. Alex Kotlowitz wrote a book 30 years ago called There Are No Children Here, about two kids growing up in the projects in Chicago. And Adrienne Nicole LeBlanc wrote a book called Random Family about welfare mothers in the Bronx. And when you read her book, for instance, it's like you're watching a soap opera. You suddenly want to know what happens to everybody and you get to follow them over time. It just by happenstance, you, you suddenly learn about a whole set of social issues that go down much more smoothly with a, with a nice story. I'm smiling because I'm thinking about when, when my, my kids are older now, when they were little, the bit, there were these big books like The Sneaky Chef that would talk about how if you put broccoli in a blender and put it in your pancake batter, that you could sneak vegetables into your kid. Right. That's what I wanted to do with Hidden Valley Road. I did not want anybody to think that I was making them take a college class in neurobiology or psychopharmacology. I wanted them to be reading a human story that would suddenly raise questions in their mind that they never had thought to ask before. That was the goal. He definitely accomplished it. I not only was cheering for the family, but I was also cheering for the researchers. And that whole treatment and research element to the book felt almost redemptive to me, that in the tragedy and the misery of the Galvin's experience, at least they were contributing to a greater understanding of this disease. How did you come upon that dual narrative way of presenting the information? Well, when I first talked to the family, I was wondering how on earth I would be able to write about the science of mental illness when writing about this family. I didn't know how important or unimportant they were. I was fairly sure that unlike Henrietta Lacks's genetic material and her family, they had not changed the game forever for, for psychiatry. They, they didn't cure schizophrenia, for instance. Right. And so I wondered, well, how instructive would this family be really? How would they help us understand uh, schizophrenia? Are they, a, are they a freak case, like just a weird anomaly? And th then, then the, they become not very useful for that purpose at all. And so my early phone calls with family members also included early phone calls with two researchers who had studied the family's genetic material for decades from two different places. There's Robert Friedman in Denver 
and Lynn DeLisi, who is at the National Institute of Mental Health in Washington, D.C., and these days is in Boston. And so I got on the phone with Robert Friedman and he said, oh, yes, you know, they, the family's from Colorado. I'm in Colorado. I've seen them over the years. And the thing I did with them back in the 80s, that led me to do X. And then from X, I was able to do Y. And then from Y, I did Z. And now I've come up with something entirely amazing that could never have happened without X, Y, and Z. And it might change the game forever. And that got me very excited because I thought, once again, this is more real. This isn't just um, coming up with an instant cure for a very complicated and difficult and intractable disease. This is science's circuitous long and winding road to, to make progress. And so I thought, well, that's a story I can tell that I can include in here. And then I called up Lynn DeLisi and she said, I have not been in touch with the family since the eighties, but I've been thinking of calling them because recently we finally were able to sequence the genome of uh, the genetic material that had been donated to us by various family members. And we think we have found a variant, a, a mutation, a, a glitch in their genetic code that most of the family members share that has to do with brain function. And this is very instructive for us. It helps us understand schizophrenia better, and it may help us understand why this family had the issues it had. And to me, that was exciting because it not just helped the family understand that there might be a real hard and fast reason why this happened to them. It also gives the story some shape. It helps the book come to some sort of conclusion. It definitely changed Mimi's mind, the mother's mind about how open she would be with other people about what was going on in her life. Suddenly she felt good about it because she thought all those years people were blaming mom and dad for the illness. Now we know that there's most likely a scientific reason. Mm -hmm then I needed to sort of write the story of those two researchers and, and they become heroes. And Linda Lisi in particular has a very compelling story to tell because she was a woman in research, in brain research at the top research entity in the country in the 1970s and 80s. And she was continually shunted aside and disregarded and told to go into radiology or to something else because this would just be too hard. She was made to feel bad for working full time. She had children at home and a caregiver for them. Her husband was a, an accomplished scientist and he wasn't getting that kind of grief from people, but she was. And so there's a whole subplot in the book about her struggles and, and her accomplishments despite those struggles. There are people in the book who were rivals of hers back in the 70s and 80s who now give her a lot of credit where they hadn't before. And so that was a satisfying story to tell too. I have to say that um, this, this kind of put some wind in my sails early on because it could potentially have been such a sad book and there is a great deal of sadness in the book, but to watch so many family members move through their traumas and continue to build productive lives and to see the scientists learning from this family, it made me feel good about the story I was telling. But what this meant was that for a few years there, when people would ask me about the book I was working on, I would say, it's about a family with 12 children and six of them have schizophrenia. And they would gasp and say, 
that sounds horrible. And then I would smile and I would say, no, 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 you've got to believe me. That's a hopeful story. There's hope in this story, really. And they would kind of scratch their heads and wrinkle their brows and say, well, well, I guess we'll see. So I'm, I'm grateful that so many readers thought it, it, it really was that way. I, I can say that, that before the book came out, what my biggest fear was that people would think that it was like a car crash of a book where you would just be a rubbernecker looking at the car crash. And I was worried for the family too. I didn't want them to think that they were being exploited in that way. And so what a thrill to see that that all of the response to the book was was right in line with what what I had hoped all along. It was really better than I could ever have imagined. It really is tremendous. We mentioned that the book was selected for one book, one Lincoln for 2122. And we are just concluding the year of this book having that title. I was wondering what was the experience of being the one book, one Lincoln selection? And I'm, I'm sure that you've had many other uh, similar selections, but what's that like knowing an entire community is reading your book? It, it was singular. I, the, the book has had some nice honors. It was selected for Oprah's book club and President Obama has his list at the end, at the end of every year with books that he recommends. And it was on that list. And those were mind blowing and very exciting. But I never, not before or since has an entire city done a common reads program that has chosen this book. And for my first reaction was that I, I knew the other books that were in the running and I, I have so much respect and an affinity for those books. And so I'm, I just wish everybody would read those too. But then my, <laughs> my, my other reaction was what a, um, what a stunning thing that a book about such potentially challenging subjects, not just severe mental illness, but abuse and neglect and, and such tragedies, murder, suicide is in the book. What an amazing thing that a community would decide to take that on and how important it is to, to sometimes talk about difficult subjects, how, how destigmatizing mental illness is so important. I, I just made me feel very encouraged. You know, I'm, I'm not one of these people who walks around with a frown and says, you people need to open your eyes and talk about the difficult subjects. But I do think that sometimes as a society, we tend to wall ourselves off from bad news. You know, we say, how are you doing? And the other person says, fine. And of course we know something's not fine. They've got a sick parent or, a, or a, some other trouble, you know, but we say fine because that's what we do as Westerners. We we are fine until we aren't. And then we get sick and then we drop out of society and then we don't come back until we're not sick again. And that's, that's a troubling thing sometimes to think that there's a whole category of people who don't count sometimes because they uh, aren't fine. And, and how important it is for families like the Galvins to come forward and talk about their troubles this way. So I felt great that the Galvins were getting that kind of attention. And of course, great that the book was too. <laughs> That's wonderful. Well, I don't want to fangirl too much, but one of the articles that you wrote for the New York Times Magazine, The Fugitive, is a article that I read a number of years ago when it was published, and it has stayed with me. So I was so delighted to see that you were the author of that article also. This is about a Norwegian uh, saboteur, Jan Balsrud who escaped Nazi capture over nine weeks and 80 miles through the kindness of his fellow citizens who got him to safety in Sweden. 
So I love this article. Also, Lost Girls, the story of unsolved murders of young women whose remains were discovered on one of Long Island's barrier islands. This was another of your best-selling books and also made into a movie. A lot of your writing does seem to be about everyday people facing extraordinary odds. What draws you to those kinds of stories? I wish I had a good, you know, fast, clean answer for that. There, there are authors who love to write about great adventurers or, or people who did something amazing. And I tend to go the other way. And I, I, I remember going the other way as a magazine writer as well when I was a full-time on staff at New York Magazine. At first, I sort of did whatever they threw at me. But then over time, you get you get sort of typecast. And I, be, I was no longer, after a while, the person who they would ask to interview the mayor or a movie star or a fashion designer or a sports star. I was the one who would be interviewing people who never imagined that they would get press coverage for some reason. So sometimes it was the, the subway superman, Wesley Autry, who, who saved a man's life by diving onto the subway tracks in front of a speeding train. Here's a guy who in some ways is superhuman, but really is just a guy who, who uh, has, a, has a daily life with his own troubles. And then, of course, many crime stories of people who are victims of crime and then people who are accused of crime people in, in tight legal spots. And so it, it really has been an outgrowth that way, writing about ordinary people. And it, it kind of fits in with my worldview too, that, that everyone has a story to tell, that there are movies we could all make of our lives. Speaking of movies, two of your works, Lost Girls, and then an article you wrote for New York Magazine, The Bad Superintendent, have both been made into feature films. What was that experience like, seeing your work reflected on the big screen? Well, when I, when I started in magazines, it was the late nine, full-time anyway, it was the late 90s, early 2000s, and that was a little blip of time where people were, Hollywood was coming and scooping up magazine stories, and everybody was sort of sitting and waiting and wondering, will I be next? But then it went away. And, and so I came away with the lesson that these things are trends. And sure enough, it came back. It really came back with streaming. And once nonfiction stories, you know, being made into drama, you know, that you could then extend out to several episodes, like suddenly that is like the dropout about, about Elizabeth Holmes. Like the, there yeah. are all sorts of nonfiction stories now that are being scooped up to be made into things. And so Lost Girls came out, the book came out in 2012, but it was first airing or streaming in 2020 in the middle of the streaming era. It really benefited from that. And it was exciting. It maintained the same themes as the book. It kept the same priorities as the book. I, I really admire the director and was amazed that the actors, Amy Ryan and Gabriel Byrne, did a great job. And Bad Education was even more of a surprise. That's a magazine story I wrote in 2004, and it came out in 2020. And... Um, I feel like the movie is an improvement on the magazine story. This is about, it's Hugh Jackman playing a, a school superintendent who is embezzling. The story I wrote was about how he charmed the community and pulled the wool over everyone, everyone's eyes. But the movie expands the, the story to also talk about the kids, you know, in, in the school system. They're actual, they're actual school children in the book, which my story <laughs> didn't have. So it, it felt like it, it kind of went one up. So far, my my time out getting scooped up by Hollywood has been pretty positive, but I guess anything's possible in the future. That article, The Bad Superintendent, is also a great read. I really enjoyed reading that one as well. 
for anyone interested in embezzlement, this is the article to read. <laughs> yeah, it's very much a how did he do it? It had made the news already, right? Like the, this guy had been caught. He was in the New York Times. And so the point of a magazine story would be to talk about how did he do it? What was it like to sit in a room with this guy? How did he make you feel confident in him so that he could then do what he needed to do to take the money? And so it, it was a, um, that one was a, a fun and interesting one to explore. Yeah, absolutely. Can you share any updates about the Galvin family or any research findings since Hidden Valley Road's publication? Well, the the family remains as amazed as I am about the all the kind attention that's been paid to them since the book came out. Lindsay has become more of an advocate for families experiencing severe mental illness. She's joined the board of a couple organizations and is out there advising family members and really encouraging other people to share their stories. The sick brothers are all, the three remaining six, sick brothers are all doing well these days. Two of them are well enough to go out on overnight outings like camping trips and such. Uh, one of them, Matthew, had a bout of COVID early on and, and other major health problems, but he really has rallied. And I actually, when I was in Colorado last fall, had lunch with him and other family members. And there he was at lunch talking and eating And I, when I thought that it was so dire for him. So that's wonderful to see. The two researchers, Robert Friedman and Lynn DeLisi continue their work. Robert Friedman is doing amazing work looking at a nutritional supplement called choline that could strengthen brain health and perhaps prevent certain brain disorders from ever really developing over time. And we'll know in a few years just how well that's working. And Lynn DeLisi's story of being a woman in science has really translated over and she's been honored by an international psychiatric organization for her entire life's work. So that was wonderful to see as well. And I think the, the pharmaceutical companies I've spoken with, as well as um, the universities, all sort of acknowledge in ways that I hadn't really seen while reporting the book, just how much we need more innovation in terms of, in terms of medicine for this disease, how the current drugs may be selling well, but that's just because they're the only game in town. And we really need more innovation that really does better for these people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought that the point that you made about drug companies, not just doing the research and funding that, but then making the very hard calculation of return on investment. Will the drugs sell? Will they return the investment of the company? I mean, suddenly you start realizing this isn't just a humanitarian effort for drug companies, it's their business. So they have a different calculation. Yeah, and, and to be fair, it's a tremendous risk to test out new medicines for severe mental illness because you can't, really can't test it on mice. You know, mice don't get schizophrenia or rats or, or whoever you would test it on. You really need human trials, and those have to happen very slowly and carefully and expensively. And so you see it, anyone who follows the pharmaceutical industry sees how every few years major companies shut down their brain science departments because they just aren't performing. And then someone else opens a brain science department somewhere else and all of the talent moves over there and the cycle continues over and over again. Yeah. Amazing. What are you working on next? You have such an amazing history of work that you've done, two best-selling books. What's next for you? I've had some uh, good stories in the New York Times Magazine. One 
went viral, which was exciting. It was about a plagiarism case. I loved that article. Yeah. That was so great. Yes. It was really exciting. I None of us who worked on it, none of the editors or anyone knew that it would be such a sensation, but it was a, a tremendous human story about two women who believed they were in the right, but were really doing each other damage and going to court over what seemed like a not necessarily the the most court-worthy um, discrepancy. And so it, it was a chance to sort of do something a little less dire than severe mental illness or, or murder-suicide. And then most recently, last week in the New York Times Magazine, I did write a story about mental illness. This one's more about homelessness and mental illness and why our system is such a failure. So I have lots of good opportunities there. And I'm looking for another book idea you mentioned that book, that magazine story about Jan Balsrud and his amazing survival story from World War II. That was a very interesting story for me because I wasn't interviewing people who were going through trauma right now. I was doing something historical and using research. And I'm wondering if maybe I, I might want to do that for the next book to just switch things up and write about something that happened 100 years ago as opposed to talking to people who had been through it. Yeah. So I guess we'll, we'll hopefully I'll, that'll, something will come of that idea. Oh, that's a great idea. What I loved about that piece too, is you actually went over to Norway and walked us at least some of the path that Jan took. Yeah. It's a, such a wild story. This guy is, um, he's on the run from the Nazis and he's hiding out in people's houses. And every time he hides out in someone's house, he knows he's putting them in danger. They all could be killed. And by the end, he is so frostbitten and, and hypothermia and, and just completely a mess that he's like a package who they need to deliver. He, he's strapped to a sled and they're taking him out, sneaking him out of the country. He, everybody's teaming up together. The community is rising up to help save this one guy. And, and the one guy is just a guy. He's a soldier. He, he ha- it's not like he's carrying some piece of important information that could win the war. They're just trying to get him out of the country. And so it's it's just amazing at every level. I was amazed to learn about that story. Mm-hmm. And then he returns to his life after the war, and he's still just a guy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He doesn't really like to talk about it. He gets the use of his feet back. He can walk around. He's, you know, he, le- he leads a life. He gets married. It's really something, really something. Amazing story. For our listeners, if you did not know Robert Kolker before, if you have not read Hidden Valley Road, I hope this conversation has been enough to spur your interest in the book, but also Robert's many writings. I mean, uh, it's really just a fascinating body of work that you have created for those of us who are really interested in those everyday people facing extraordinary circumstances in many different realms. So really exciting. Where can people best stay in touch with you? Thank you again, Nancy. It's been a real honor to talk to everybody in Lincoln for the past year and to talk to you today. Um, Anyone can find me at robertkulker.com. That's K-O-L-K-E-R. And um, my email address is on there. And most of my old stories are on there and, and information about my books. And I'm on Twitter as Bob Kulker. And, um, I try not to be on Twitter, but I'm on Twitter. (laughs) That might be the story of many people. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, thank you so much for joining the Front Porch Book Club. It's just an absolute delight to be able to talk to you about this tremendous book. Thank you, Nancy. Thanks, everybody. All right. Bye-bye. Oh, Nancy, what a wonderful interview. Robert Kolker is such an amazing author. I am a true fan. Oh, me too. I loved hearing him talk about the thought and the care that he takes in determining how he plans to write and then how he constructs his narratives. The sign of a really great book is it just seems to flow very easily and naturally, which Hidden Valley Road did, but there's an awful lot of planning, hard work, expertise, and skill that goes into making such a readable and riveting book. It is It is a riveting book, and it is so well written that as heavy as of a subject as it is, schizophrenia, and as deep as he goes into um, the diagnosis and treatment and all of that, the history over the decades, and this very interesting family, it just creates such a great readable book for just everybody, really. Mm-hmm. Well, fantastic book. Our website is thefrontporchbookclub.com. And our episodes come out twice a month, the first and third Wednesday of every month. See you next time, Linny. Okay, Nancy. See you later.